You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, I'm Lisa Birnbach. My head is blown. My brain is blown. I just found out that the guest who is here in the studio with me, Ariel Levy, has an extra syllable in her last name. For 30 years of our friendship, I thought her name was Ariel Lev because she spells it L-E-V-E, and I'm chastened. Wow. Well, you see, you learn something all the time. You know the saying that if you want something to get done, you ask a busy person to do it. Well, I'm busy now. I really feel like I'm working more, I'm selling more writing, I feel like a better writer suddenly. That's what happens when you sell a little piece to The New Yorker. You start to feel good about yourself, even though it took maybe 80 turndowns before I got something sold. And then the same week, I cooked Passover Seder for 26 people. Okay, so I'm coasting this week. Not really. Um, My guest, Ariel Levy, whom I mentioned moments ago, is a memoirist now, the publication of An Abbreviated Life last year. And she is also a very accomplished journalist. She's interviewed the greats. I've interviewed the D-list, and I say that with pride. Hey, was this a good week for you? It was a good week for me. And I am feeling so good that I don't really want to unpack it. I think a big part of it is spring. Spring is here finally on the East Coast. It feels good and it smells good. And thus, I take you to my five best things of the week. Number one, this is the smell of other people's French fries. Okay, let me explain. I'm crazy for French fries. I love them. I love them thin. I love them thick. I like them better thin. Of course, they are a conduit for salt, which apparently is my true pleasure in life. I love the smell of them. I eat too many of them. I used to say my body was made up 70% of sarcasm, 30% of French fries. But if I smell someone else's French fries, it almost makes me feel like I've ordered the French fries and have the strength of will to pass them by. Now, of course, I'm not a monster. I'm not going to eat a stranger's French fries. I was raised with some manners. But so other people's French fries give me kind of the pleasure of them with also no calories of them. Does that make sense? That It makes sense to me. That's my number one. It's only going up from there. Number two, the King Coil Florence Mattress. Now, when you take a subway in New York, you are confronted with many, many ads for many online mattress companies. They're all disrupting the bed buying business and so on. But I slept on a friend's bed. It was such a good sleep. And my back was so happy when I woke up that I had to tear off the sheets and see what it was. It was King Coil with two Ks. So you know it's not a new company. I don't know where they're located. I don't know if I could even find one in New York. And you know how names, it's very tricky. The Florence mattress is probably not made anymore. Now it's probably called the Olivia mattress. And how you figure out which is which is, you know, it's Olivia in New Jersey, it's Florence in California, it's Muriel in Alabama. But anyway, this was a great mattress. So I have to call them out because I'm scared of sleeping in other beds now because of my bad back. Number three. It's lilac season. I bought my first 
bunch of lilacs last Friday. The flower district on West 28th Street, New York, only was selling something called a bale of lilacs. So it was like bringing in, I don't know, a Christmas tree's worth of lilacs. When I trimmed them and put them in vases, my kitchen floor looked like a compost heap. Is that a term of art? And the smell of lilacs just makes me so happy. And with each vase, and there were it filled a lot of vases, I kept saying, oh, my God, to myself, oh, my God, it smells so good. Number four, since the weather has improved about a thousand percent, I got to walk through Central Park this week with my Exhibit B, and that was a total treat. Whenever I walk through the park on a nice day or bike in the park, which I haven't done in a while, I actually feel jealous of me. I think what a great thing. It's hard to explain, but there are parts of the park that are so beautiful, and when you're in a taxi or racing through it, you don't necessarily pay attention to your surroundings as and of course they change year round but wow it is an extraordinary park i keep thinking if i could meet frederick law olmsted the man who designed central park and he designed the grounds around the capitol and he designed the campus at amherst and he designed one of the parks in boston i, I he would be someone i would have loved to have known what a genius number 5 community within community. I mean by this, the little circles of friends and colleagues that become our immediate world. It could be anything that brings us together, former classmates, co-workers, ex-sorority sisters, a friend of a friend of your exes. It doesn't matter. Some of these people become your family of choice. They become the people you go to for your reality check. One thing I know, it would be very hard to survive without them. And now... Please say hi to our guest, Ariel Levy. Ariel is a, a very accomplished writer. She was a columnist at the Sunday Times Magazine of London, the fancy one, and The Guardian. She's written a memoir called An Abbreviated Life, which came out last year. She has survived an epically strange and damaging childhood, to be honest. And I am wondering how you got the the courage to write so candidly about your childhood. Um, well, first, can I comment on, on one of your... Yes. I would like to say I've never been jealous of me. That... <laughs> so that is there very... that point. Very impressive. Thank you. Um... How did well courage is an interesting word because it's so meaningless now. People say everyone has courage, you know, oh, it's so courageous of you to go to Fairway on a Sunday. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of the the, the bar lowers. Yes. <clears throat> and I never thought of it as courage. I really didn't. I thought of it as I, I, it wasn't even something that was cerebral. It was a feeling. It was a sense of, I have to tell this story before I die. You really did feel like this book was your destiny and the only way you could get out from under this childhood of yours was to write about it, didn't you? That's right. And I think that that's really the only time I write 
you know, unless I have to pay my bills, which um, is, you know, the constant dilemma we have. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the writing that, that really matters, the writing that frees you is the writing where you're on some sort of life raft to save yourself from something. And I believe that. It's a process of discovery. You don't know where you're going until you get there, and that that comes through the writing. It is uh, doubtless that the book, well, your mother is a very complicated and damaged person. Is that okay to say? It's okay to say. And she uh, really didn't know the first thing about being a mother. She was kind of entitled and helpless and narcissistic and you were her kind of pet not her daughter um uh, when did you realize i mean uh, stupid question but when did you realize that this was weird and not cool because when you're little maybe till 10 you sort of idolize your parents even if they're insane so when did it occur to you that this was not good and not good for you? Um, I believe, I think I had under an understanding that what I was experiencing was not was abnormal, and most of that was because I would feel defiant a lot. I would, you know, push back and. Of course, those feelings were disavowed, which is what happens with gaslighting, as you know. And it was um, just a very upside-down universe for me. When I became, I think I was in my 30s, and I do write about this in the book, that, that there was some very innocuous moment where I was sitting with a friend of mine in a restaurant, and she had said something about she had a daughter and she was talking about her daughter in a way that provoked me to make this connection that I'd never had unconditional love. And it was at that moment that I really understood how um, corrosive that environment had been because I was alone. I was an only child. I didn't have anyone to compare it to. And and my scales for what was considered uh, normal behavior were just off the charts. So that was that was kind of that moment in my life where I thought back to what I had experienced in a, with a different. It was framed differently. You had what? Just despite all the therapy, by the oh, way. Yeah, it yeah. happened in a Greek restaurant on the Upper West Side, <laughs> as as those things do. Come on, they don't always happen in therapy, unfortunately. Um, you had on, uh, I would say, from a casual observer's point of view. I'm not saying me, and I'm not saying anybody who's read your book, but you had a life of extraordinary privilege. Your parents. Your mother came from money. Your mom uh, knew a lot of celebrities, was a celebrity at, at in some quarters. Your parents split up when you were four? One more, yeah, my father left when I was two. Two. And he moved to Southeast Asia. So it wasn't like you got to see him a lot. Well, f- children need routine and stability and safety much more than they need a cocktail party in their house every night. 
And your mom just didn't seem to understand that. No. Did you feel freed when the book was finally in your hands? Uh, you mean when I when it was published? Yes, <clears throat> when it was published, and finally a, a a a physical thing that you made all by yourself. Not right away. It took. I mean, it it it. it I think when you're writing a a book like a memoir, very um, the process of writing is something that you're in just. Um, you lose yourself in that, and then there's uh, the the publication, and you're you you lose yourself in that, and all of what goes with that, and you're talking about the book, and you're you know going through that process, and then after everything dies down, can you really start to unravel the feelings of what that process meant, right? So it's it. It's taken me a while to really think about the difference between how I felt prior to writing the book and how how I feel now. And um, and when I say think about how I felt, what what I mean is being able to um, actually step back, you know, rather than be in the moment of the feeling and just step back and reflect on it and I do think it was freeing I really do I'm in a different place now than I was then and it's a much more it's a place where I feel I'm much more in control of my own life so it you know taking charge of one's life is something that really is hard for people who have experienced a lot of trauma and as you said you're an only child you really didn't have a person to bounce it all back with, or to, or right. off, against. off, right, or whatever right. preposition. I mean right. that that that's something that's occurred to me, that your childhood was you had a lot of friends. You were much more popular than, let's say, I was, but you didn't have an essential person to have your back. Yeah, I. That's. That's why I think I'm a very self-contained person because I, in a lot of ways, I always had to have my own back. Right. And when you when you when you're a child and you have to fend for yourself to have the needs met that a parent should be giving, like basics, fundamentals, you know, those things. Um, it goes two ways. I think either you. Uh, disconnect and and really become someone who who isn't capable of taking care of yourself, or you just learn how to really fight for the things that you need, which is what I what I did. And um, it took a it took a long time. You know, it took pretty much fifty years to get to the point where I feel like, oh, that's not a bad thing. You know. Well, you're in you're in. A great place compared to where you were, honestly, from my vantage point before you wrote the book. And you do seem much stronger and less afraid. Wow. I think when you have a mom who, who, day is night, night is day, you you don't really. She she sort of bred you to be 
Oh, they call it grooming. It's like it's like somebody is grooming you to take advantage of you. Well, I I think what happens is you're trained to live in a malevolent world. You know, you you're you're programmed to feel like the worst is about to happen. I have to brace myself. I have to be prepared. You're always on guard. There's a a sense of uh, of um, just stealing yourself all the time for the you know for the rug to be pulled out from underneath you. And when I say that, I mean on many levels in many ways with people in circumstances with professional situations you know you're just constantly living with this feeling of it's all going to get yanked away any second and that really does not enable you to be able to trust people to be able to go you know with the flow to a certain extent to feel at ease right with yourself right you're always on guard did you feel when the book came out and people wrote about it and, you know, you got such wonderful reviews, were you worried that people were going to judge you as a person as opposed to your writing? Um, strangely, no. I was not. I think what happened with the book, and this was something I hadn't anticipated, was that I went... So first I just got everything out that I needed to say. Then I edited and, you know, we can talk about that, like what goes into writing a memoir. But then I wasn't going to publish it because once I'd gotten it all out, I was panicked. And I thought, why do I need to subject myself to, I mean, apart from the fact that I have a publishing contract, which is actually the only reason I published. Is that right? Yeah, I really... I didn't feel like I needed to publish the book because I had written it, but I had, you know, I also had this obligation. I had this obligation, and then something else, really, which is a huge, probably the reason I wrote the book, even though I didn't know it at the time, was how many people it would help to feel less alone, and that was a big part of the motivation to publish it, mm-hmm. um, because I remembered books that I'd read that had given me a feeling of I'm not alone in this and how, you know, important that had been. You have had a, uh, so far, great career. You have interviewed a lot of uh, extraordinary people in your in your life as a journalist. Richard Ford, John Irving, Pamela Adlon. Mike Nichols. Mike Nichols. Elton John. Elton John. The ghost. You lived in London for a while, and you were based in Europe. Writing about yourself, Mm. did you take any of the cues or or techniques that you had applied in talking to other people in looking in at yourself? No, I don't think... I did that. If I did, it wasn't conscious. Did I, you take yourself out for a drink? <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish I no. I think that I think that what happened when I was interviewing people, as you as a journalist know, is you're always um, curious about what's interesting to you. So. Obviously, I would do the research on people, and I would, you know, prepare for the interview. 
But I would always sneak a question in there about something that I was personally curious about, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when I was writing the book, it was almost like I was curious about myself and I saw myself outside myself. As a subject. Right. Like I was reporting on myself. Which... On my inner life. Which you felt you could do. I mean, you had years of experience examining other lives. Right. It's funny because I feel like you're you're drawing the the connection between I guess I journalism should, and memoir me not writing. To? No, I just I didn't I don't see it as I mean, writing a story on someone else. Is that a parallel I shouldn't try to find? I, I well, I'm not going to say you shouldn't try to find it. I just didn't I didn't make the connection. I thought when you're writing when you're doing a story on someone else, you're you're not digging inside yourself, right? I mean, right. You're taking the things that are, you know, what what your voice and your interests and your person, you know, your you know, point of view. Right. Yeah. You are in control and you're directing the story the way you want it to go. Right. So that's a parallel, right? But um, you're telling someone else's story. So you're interpreting you're, what you have. What you have. And you're trying to convey to a reader something that they will leave the story discovering something new. Right? And you're not in control of what they're giving you either. You can only use the material you're given. Right. Although I would find as a journalist it made me very uncomfortable when I would get so when the conversation was so intimate that the subject would forget that they were being interviewed because it was like this state of cognitive dissonance. On one hand, I was like, this is fantastic. This person is saying stuff they don't even know they're saying. Right. And then a part of me was like, oh, this is terrible because now I'm going to have to I either, can't use it. I can't use it. I don't want to betray them. They don't, they don't know that they're saying all this stuff. So to go back to the memoir, I think that there wasn't a conscious connection between I'm reporting this story on myself and writing the book. It was just... Um, I knew that I had to tell the story. I said what I needed to say. And I made decisions about what to include and what not to include that were very strategic. Whereas with a with a, a, a profile of someone, you're, you, the, the, the pools that you're drawing from are not as fast. Right, right. And you're not digging within them because you can't. Right. They're not you. Let's see. Ariel, I know you put time into your list, which I appreciate. I could tell immediately that it wasn't just dashed off. Oh, so, thank you. So, um, and it made me laugh. Okay. Just me. I don't know. I, I, I'm <laughs> such a fan. Um, why don't you go with your first one? Okay. So, um, my, my latest... Uh, obsession is this milk frothing machine that I was given as a gift. And I had, as I said to you, I'm, you know, I'm obsessed with my, with coffee. I can't really function without it. I didn't think it could get any better. Than just coffee in just the morning. coffee. I was really happy with my coffee. And 
I didn't want to mess with that happy, you know. It's, I get it. I really, like, it. I had the formula. I made it in the right, you know, um, what's it called? The French press. Oh, French press. So um, then this frothing machine was introduced into the equation, and I tried it out, and it turned out to be this um, cloud-like, light, sweet, warm foam which would sit on top of my coffee and I use um, oat milk which happens to be pretty great for foaming and um, as I said to you the only downside is that at 8 o'clock a.m. my day is now well the rest of it you know is south of the coffee so your high point is your morning coffee and it goes down. That's right. Like when you make something so good, it really has nowhere to go but down. Yeah, no, that's, that's, I understood you. <laughs> Number two, my, um, okay, so eavesdropping is my, is my, like the best thing on the planet right now. I really can't, I can't go a day without eavesdropping and especially just, snippets of conversation. I don't even need the whole thing. I just love to to walk down the street or to be in an elevator or to be on a subway platform and overhear other people's conversations. And I do this a lot everywhere. I do it in Bali. I do it in New York. I do it in... I mean, it just... It gives, comes naturally. It, it gives me joy. Now, you know, eavesdropping is a delicate thing. It, it's an art, not a science, right? You have to learn how to sort of... Is it an art? I don't know. I've never explored that. Maybe it's a science. Maybe it is a science. <laughs> well, then you're good at science. <laughs> I, Who knew? I know. <laughs> no, but my question is, you have to, you have to look as if you're not over... Yeah. You have to look like you're not doing right. it. You can't Do, say, excuse, excuse me. me. <laughs> say that Did again. you say you had sex with Leonard Bernstein? Right. Oh, no, you didn't. Okay. So do you have any techniques, any tips for would-be eavesdroppers? Oh, well, a great tip would be to pretend to be reading a book Uh huh. if you're sitting at a restaurant. Although now I would say it might be pretending to be on your phone. Um, I really, I I don't know if the, I'm just thinking now as I break it down, because I never have before, that um, I like walking on the street behind people. <laughs> That's a good way to uh-huh. do it. Nobody notices you. Like the two, I, I said in my list to you, there were two old ladies talking about Mark Morris. And yeah. The, and it just gave me a tremendous amount of pleasure to listen to these ladies and I actually learned something and you know it was a it was a really good technique that I'm now oh walking behind people is very clever that's right yeah you they have to be a little they have to be loud talkers yeah that so, helps yeah. and also a lot of loud talkers are walking down the street alone talking on their earbuds so that's, that's also yeah you know, I've heard things. There is a, a website or a thing, a thing called eavesdropping in New York. I think right. it's a it's an Instagram or something, and those are pretty good. Right, I agree. I mean, I actually prefer eavesdropping than reading about eavesdropping. Because- <laughs> 
something, there's something lost direct, in translation. Direct to the customer. Right. <laughs> Fresh. Right. Like, I like to be involved in the conversation I'm eavesdropping on. Have you ever been caught eavesdropping? Um, people, no. Not really. People are so self-involved. They don't really, you know. Nobody's thinking, is anybody listening into this conversation? They're really in the moment. I kind of like watching people get angry um, in shops and stuff. Mm. Service, you know, bad service rants. Yeah, right. There was a store, I don't know if it exists anymore, called Tender Buttons. Oh, I know Tender Buttons. A lot of buttons there. A lot of buttons. If you need buttons, go to Tender Buttons. But don't be surprised if someone is rude to you. And, and they, they used, to, I used to be very scared uh, to go in there because somebody would always get into a fight with one of the people who work there. Do you have six of this button? If there aren't six there, we don't have them. You know, they were very snarky and snippy and unpleasant. And <laughs> I would go there and then have unfulfilled rage that had been caused by tender buttons and then think, what can I do with this? <laughs> it's like I have this big ball of yarn and I got to get rid of it. And then I would go to a store on Third Avenue where I would always be ignored and I would just let it rip. It's funny, the tender buttons, which has such a sweet, gentle, gentle connotation. It was the source of this rage. Rage and not just mine. I was delighted to have fellowship in seeing other people get into real right. hissy fits there. Yeah, I, well... Go there sometimes. See if, if it's still in business. No, seriously. That, no, I do. I definitely need more rage in my life. <laughs> no, you don't. But, you know, there are these sites that tell you good places to cry in New York. Right. You know, which aisle at a CVS, which part of the library. But I don't think they have, you need some rage. Right. Where to go get rage that will fuel you before you go see your lawyer or your parole officer or mm. your That's shrink because or, I think everywhere in New York... People are angry, and they <laughs> yeah. fill it up. Right. Just like, top me up. Right. Okay, number three. Okay, number three was, I said, bringing things to goodwill. Was I, uh, I always forget the incredible sense of relief and satisfaction, I feel. Like, it's everything all at once. I'm helping other people. I'm cleaning out my own closets I'm it's just a kind of a miracle cure for everything it's like having a colonic for the whole person and your apartment right. it's cleaning it out right it's exactly it's a win-win-win then you can get new stuff to put in there well no for me the best part is I realize how little I need it's amazing how I, no matter how often I clean stuff out, I it's somehow just it, it's never enough, you know. So, do you um, tell things that they've sparked joy and then give no, them away? No, I no, don't. I don't, no. I don't talk to my clothes. <laughs> I don't get that one. Anyway, <laughs> number four is something I've been meaning to read. Um, you love Susan Orlean's new book. I do. I. Highly recommend it. It's called The Library Book, which is such a great name for a book about the Los Angeles Library. Right. She is a good reporter. She's fantastic. And this book, actually, I was sold on the 
the what she does, which is so difficult to do and so artistic, is combine reporting on something with making it into a a, a really intimate emotional story, right? So, like to take something that would be overlooked and then to really go back and 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 I mean, you you know the story, right? Yes, it's, yes. This, for for people who don't know, it's the library fire in Los Angeles in 1986. They didn't know if it was an arson or what happened, and it, the story came out the same day as Chernobyl. So that I didn't even know. I think it was the same day. I might I might have that wrong, but it was in the same same news cycle. News yeah. cycle. So it didn't get a lot of attention, despite the fact that hundreds and thousands of books burned. And hundreds and thousands more, I think, were damaged in the fire. I'm so sure. it was yeah. very, very dramatic. But the way that she writes is you're back in that moment. So it's really the play-by-play of, you know, with the firefighters and the people who were working in the library. And for, like I said in the on my list, if you love libraries and you love books and you love reading good writing, it's like what you know, it's got all of that. Cool. I feel cool. like a, her publicist, but I just, I adored the book. And number five, I ate one of these yesterday. Do you want to talk about your fascination with these? Sure. I call them ugly oranges. Mm-hmm. I don't know what their actual name is. I think they're called sumo oranges, aren't they? They're the big oh, ones yes. with the dimpled skin, right. and the skin is hard, but very easy to peel off. That's right. And they have no seeds? That's the best part, because who has time for seeds? I have no time for seeds. Anything seedless, I will love. Um, That's interesting. Sumo, I wonder... Because they're large. Maybe because of the the knot on... The bump on top. Oh, maybe that's like the knot. The the, sumo knot. The sumo knot. I never thought of that. I just thought of the size, the mammoth size of these... Ugly oranges, right. as you call them. Yeah, so I saw them. I thought, oh, this looks kind of ugly, and I'm attracted to that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're dimpled like cellulite, and I'm familiar with that. So um, I tried one, and they were amazing. It's it's basically the best-case scenario of an orange. It's completely You're sweet. Right. There's no seeds. There's no... No hassle. With the peeling... The peeling is incredible. And they are a little bit more pricey than the regular oranges. So you go to Trader Joe's where they are much less expensive. And as I said, that's what makes life better. And also they are, as you say, they're they're the winner in the citrus family. Mm. They're a winner. Maybe not the winner. I would say they're, I would a, say they're very they're close. close. Yeah. <laughs> Between that and maybe... I mean, I would hate to say lemon is a runner-up because, you know, it's a lemon, but... But lemon is such a workhorse. That's true. Unless you slice it in half. Yeah. And squeeze. Yeah. But it's a workhorse, the lemon. I mean... Right. If you have arthritis, you know, or carpal tunnel syndrome, like the squeezing... Is that... Oh, that's good therapy for you if you have those No, I'm saying then it's really a lot of work. Ah, who needs it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Never mind those lemons. Um, Why? What would be your top citrus choice? I think my that that would be, or there's something called a Satsuna mandarin orange, which you can get only in the winter, and they 
when huh. you see them at the store, they have leaves attached. And they just, you look at them practically, and they shed their skin. Oh, okay. They're very strippable. Well, while we're on this fascinating subject of desirable fruit, I saw, and I saw this at Fairway, a dragon fruit, which is, an, do you know? Yeah, it has those little dots, those little seeds in them. The little seeds. I don't think it's a citrus, but... It, and it's prohibitively expensive here. So I eat them when I'm in Bali because right. they cost, you know, two cents. Oh, maybe I should have mentioned early on that you live half the year in Bali. Hmm. Oh, well. That's okay. They know now. <laughs> so <laughs> if they're still there. If they're still there. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, anyway, the dragon fruit, is an, it's really worth trying. There's something called a something steen, a mango steen. Mango steen. Okay, mango steen. I only tried one time when I was in Rajampat, I guess, in in Southeast Asia. I thought it was a Jewish mango. Because, <laughs> well, right, right. But, and it's a a fruit that takes a lot of effort to get. Right. It's sort of it's got this funny skin and then you dig 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 and then it's kind of like a lychee with an indescribable sections. It's like a it's like different. It looks like a tangerine but with the consistency of a lychee. Exactly. And, and it, it's very good. It's very good. A and lot it's hard of, to find. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen that here. Although Chinatown has a lot of the fruits that I eat when I'm in Southeast Asia, they have where them. she lives half the year. Yeah, um, if they're still there. <laughs> if they're still there. <laughs> so with that, Ariel, if anybody, if you're still here, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me, your host. Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Ariel Levy. You'll find a link to Ariel's book, An Abbreviated Life, on my blog at lisabirnbach.com. And you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and YouTube, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And that's a lot of places already to get your podcasts. You can also tell your friends about this podcast if you liked it. If you didn't, please don't say a word. It will be between us. Until next week, stay cool and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers.